Hello and welcome to a new episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which are intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. At the time of recording, lockdown is finally over. So in this series, I'm delighted to say that we're back in our guests' places of work, albeit at an appropriate distance. Today, I find myself in the central London studio of Esna Sue. How can you take a traditional craftsmanship and then make it to yourself to really express what you want to achieve with your pieces and reflect your concept? The artist and jewellery designer was brought up in Turkey near the Syrian border before arriving in London in 2003, initially to improve her English. Since graduating from Central St. Martins in 2015, she has developed a reputation for her extraordinary pieces that attempt to highlight the plight of refugees, creating wearable sculptures that often curve around and hug the body, using traditional Turkish techniques of weaving, twining, needlework and crochet, as well as materials such as leather, cotton and paper rush. In her collection, entitled Burden 1, for example, knitted vegetable tanned leather cord is moulded around some of her most cherished objects, leaving hollow shapes that, in the artist's words, contain memories and loss of the past. It is stunning, deeply moving work that combines craft with protest and a deep-seated sense of empathy. As one writer put it, Sue actively seeks out both the horror and the beauty in her own cultural history as a way of unpicking contemporary issues surrounding cultural identities. She's exhibited in places such as Shanghai and Chongju in South Korea, and in 2017 she won the Art, Craft and Design Prize in the Hospital Club's H.Club100 Awards. Esna, very nice to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. How are you? Pleasure. Thank you for coming. I am very well, thank you, and it's really good to be in the same place with, uh, you know, I know. With you. Thank it's great. You. Um, I'm cheating a little bit. In the intro, I said we're in your studio, which is in Cockpit Arts. Technically, because it's quite noisy there, we're not. We're in Sarabang, where you used to have a studio. But can we talk a little bit about your place of work, your space? Could you maybe describe it for our listeners? Of course. I received an award from the Worshipful Company of Basket Makers, and I'm resident sentiment at Cockpit Arts. So it's been nearly eight months. Um, sadly, I have to stay away, you know, in the last four months So I just started going back again, which is amazing. So my space rather kind of exhibition-like, I split into a couple of parts, uh, which I make the burden collection, all about leather, cutting leather, knitting, and also weaving, but also do kind of small part, you know, crochet sometimes. So it is bit by bit, you know, split into different parts, yeah. And you have things hanging from your walls, well, attached to the walls and hanging from the ceiling and all sorts of things. Yes, yes, yeah. All around the place. I do like kind of when people see my space is I want them to lose themselves, you know, into all different uh, shapes. And I try my best to, you know, show everyone uh, what I have and what I have done. And they are huge. My making space doesn't take much it's rather, you know, pieces themselves do take the whole, you know, space. Mm. It's impossible not to talk about the virus, I guess. It's dominated everybody's lives this year. I mean, how have you coped? I see from Instagram you've been making a new piece made from newspapers and plastic shopping bags. Mm. To be honest, I think I had this experience before. I have a big family. I have six siblings. 
and three of them have sickle cell anemia and it's an illness where blood cells, when they don't get enough oxygen, they shrink and oxygen doesn't run you know, through the body properly. They have to go to hospital in intensive care and they have to have like blood transfusion. So me as a young child, not having my mom around me and my, you know, worrying about my siblings were always weird silence and it was the same as during lockdown mm. uh, for me. I knew what was going to come up and it was silence. Not only, you know, in London, it was all around the world. You shared the same, you know, emotions. You worried with people that you don't know. I tried my best to keep going. And what I found, I think people needed distractions. And normally I don't really kind of present my private life through Instagram, Mm. but Mm. I did try my best because... I also received messages, you know, how they like like the park I go, Clisso Park and all around. And I kept doing it uh, just to keep myself busy and also, you know, just to show everyone else's, you know, we are all in the same position. Well, it was quite interesting because you took, if not the same shot, but a very similar shot almost daily of the church spot yes, you yes. in the park. I think it is Church Street, you know, in the Church Street. Um I just love every time I pass it and I see this beauty and I always think, you know, people must see what I see right now. And every time I put, um, you know, on my Instagram, it is new. I never repeat image at all. And when, you know, we're going to normal and I just started living it Mm. bit by bit. But Mm. I I still do it sometimes, yeah. And can we talk about the piece that you are still making or have been making? Of course. That was inspired by the situation. Of course. Which is made of newspaper and plastic shopping bags, I guess. Yes, yes. My aim was to do coiling. It was the first time I did it. But in 2014, when I was in my hometown, I learned from a craftsperson. And she was the daughter of the person, my grandparents' neighbor. She was always kind of doing this tray uh, made of coiling beautiful tray and I think during lockdown we all needed uh, to do something as we are on internet Uh, just kind of simply craft sharing you know my craft and I just ask myself what could I do for people without wasting their time or money you know ordering from internet or going to somewhere else to buy materials. I just try to gather information or techniques then I can provide what people can do in their own spaces. It was a coiling technique and what I loved about it is kind of constantly wrapping newspapers and then kind of gathering. It's like, you know, healing the wound, you know, you constantly touching a space. And the newspaper I used, it's, it's weird, we were hearing about coronavirus months ago and we just you know reading it we just watching it on tv but it was coming closer and closer we didn't know how it was going to affect so the newspaper I used all about the news that I collected through January and March all kind of you know hidden within you know all wrapped and the uh, materials I used all recycling from my like milk bottle you know uh, kind of paper around it or my cereal packaging all kind of 
cut sliced, you know, uh, strips, and I used all of them. All kind of bringing together and also shapes, which is amazing because I was on my own and I just couldn't do filming or live Instagram, but I decided to record bit by bit. And then I shared it with, you know, audience on Instagram, which was amazing. People mm. made it and I... So the notion was that people would make yes, this with yes, you? Yes, I did, yeah. yeah. Uh, I did put it on Instagram, uh, all the stages, and it was just amazing how people, I, I can see, you know, filed them even in their own way. It was quite good sharing, you know, mm. one simple craft and how people appreciate it because I received, you know, messages and images, what they did uh, as well. And also in a rather different way from the work they would normally make in your studio, but this was loaded with memory as, as well. Right? Of course. It is like my serial packaging. I use it and then it's done and I put it on the side. This is... Uh, the time I spend in the mornings, but it became something completely different on piece itself. Again, it just loaded memories within pieces. Can we talk a little bit about how you describe what it is that you do? Because you studied jewellery, as we discussed at St. Martin's, but would you call what you do jewellery now? Um, it's hard to say, you know, jeweller artist, jewellery designer, sculpture. <laughs> I can say totally wearable sculpture. I focus on body itself because exploring body is already challenging and making a piece that kind of fit within body is a completely different way of expressing what I want to tell to my audience. Probably I would call it, you know, jeweler artist. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Is it important your stuff is wearable in that case? It is, yes, definitely. I try my best to connect with human wearable and have this sit in our lives. I try my best to focus on the body, yes. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about your background a little? Sure. You were brought up in Antioch, which is only 12 miles from the Syrian border. What did your parents do? Um, my dad was an officer in a the government. They were cousins and they had arranged a marriage. And once they married, they had to leave the town. My dad was the first person studied in the town. And it was a bit difficult because he was supposed to stay in the town and look after the land which was very tough as an officer. They had to travel from one city and they can only stay like maximum four years. Right. I had six siblings and we traveled from different places. And for me, it's never stayed in the same place. Even primary school, you know, I went to different places. I think it was constant moving in my life. Mm. That kind of, you know, one place to another. Never, you know, settled. But there was... One place that's never changed is my hometown. So always going to my hometown uh, each summer and staying three months. So my mom's first language was Arabic. And once we started going to school and learning Turkish, you know, speaking Turkish, sorry. And my mom started speaking Turkish with us as well. I think this is kind of constant changing within my family. 
But yeah, all kind of fun, you know, having big family. Can you give us a sense of what Antioch was like at that time uh, and what it's like now? It seems to me it's a part of the world where you see on the news quite regularly. In that sense, for people in the West, it can feel quite abstract. I think when I was a child, it was such a kind of quiet place. And the city Antioch is being centered to Christianity for Jewish people, you know, and Muslim, and it's in a very small space. You see three different religions kind of gather. Such a beautiful and friendly living. It is still, but what has changed is I think people struggle, especially, as I said, 12 miles from my hometown is one of the biggest refugee camp in Yailadara. Struggle is huge at the moment. Mm-hmm and people need help. And sadly, local people have to face this issue. When these two parts, you know, refugees and then kind of face with uh, local people, it's a big kind of problem because local people don't want to kind of involve with uh, refugees like we see in here as well. But, you know, think about people lost their homes and everything. They have nothing and they have to rebuild their lives. When there are not really properly established rules, it will be all chaotic and it's still, it is getting better, but it's still, you know, big gap between local people and also refugees, but still, you know, going on. So I'm really fascinated by your collection, The Burden. Can you tell me a little bit of detail about how you make it and what it means? With The Burden collection, I use uh, vegetable tanned leather. And what I do, I cut into cord and I knit it. The concept of it is focused on the emotional charge of objects, refugees, belongings. And in order to give this, you know, emptiness that I needed to uh, use my cherished objects and knitted piece that I stretched around my cherished object. And once the piece dried, I do take the objects uh, out and then gently stitch it again in order to create this hollow shape of memories. And what are your cherished objects? They're all belong to my childhood and it's like oil lamp and there's kind of wooden mallet my grandparents used to have olive trees and this is uh, they used to crash their olives with them. And every time I use it, they slightly get wet and I smell this olive oil on, around it. This is, yeah. And these objects represent objects that a refugee of may take with them, yeah. I mean, yeah. it does reflect my experiences, but in return, uh, refugees struggle to... You learned to crochet from your sister, I believe. But there's a fascinating moment in some of the films and some of the press clippings that I've read where you asked your mother to teach you to weave. And she said no. Yeah. And there's a moment in a film you made that I saw where you said, I knew the anger on her face and I shouldn't be close to her anymore. Uh, subsequently, yeah. it transpires she relented and she taught you. But I'm intrigued by her initial response. Why would she be so angry? Yeah, um... 
I think there was one in the morning. It was um, kind of walking in the town and she saw kind of nice, you know, green reeds. And then she looked at me and said, if I still wanted to learn. And I wasn't sure, you know, and I was surprised how, how she asked me. And I said, yeah. And I wasn't excited and I knew that I shouldn't show my excitement. And she said, well, your hands will be so sore and your back and your legs. I hardly knew what my mom meant. She just looked at me like, can't you find any job in London, another job? And I looked at my mom and I saw her face, you know, seeing her daughter is doing same job when she she used to do when she was very young. Uh, it wasn't pleasant at all because I studied uh, Trisma Hotel Management in Turkey and my second degree here. And doing the things that she used to do, it is not really what someone who studied mm. two degrees. So it wasn't the physical pain as such as it's just course, she wanted better for you. Of course. I mean, experience she had... I think she didn't want me to go through. And uh, to be honest, she was right. It took me four or five months to make my final collection. It was so painful, my fingers, my hands. Four months, I couldn't press my iPhone with my fingers. It was only with my little fingers. Ow. I know, I know. I just hold my cup of coffee with my inner hands it was so painful this is your final collection from central st martins yes and every time i do even crochet or weaving is same the pain never changed it is painful but every pain i would say you know it's worth it so as a child you knew it was painful you knew your mother didn't really want to uh teach you how to do this yet you were still desperate to do it why is that all the time i was really into doing things. Um, As I mentioned, you know, earlier on, not having my mom around me is kind of desperate to find something to distract me. When I was eight or nine years old, I had a pair of knitting needles and a wool. But when I saw like women knitting, they all looked very elegant, the way they moved their arms everything. And I was just copying all the time and I'm copying my sister. But one of my mom's neighbor popped in and I showed me how to knit. And this is kind of how it started for me to do craft. But, you know, weaving and everything from early age, very simply kind of twisting reeds with my cousins, because this is what elderly people used to do around us in, in my hometown. And we just used to copy them, which is amazing. And also, I come from a very traditional background, you know, it's like studying is not really common at all. And when I come to certain age, I should get married and I have children, even studying until secondary and that's it for girls. So there was nothing, you know, wedding and funerals, kind of big important things in our lives. And then, you know, exploring art within craft here was a big thing. Uh, became so important. So in my first year at CSM, we did Swarovski project and the whole year split, you know, first year split into four uh, different groups and I fell into Istanbul group. And I was always asking myself, what happens if I receive a project that really 
need to reflect it, my old tradition. And I came up with the idea of crocheting crystals, which was another painful, long work. And people appreciated what I did. And I just couldn't believe. And I was on the phone with my mom. And mom, can you believe? You know, people loved what I did. <laughs> and this was the moment which, even if, you know, it came from my childhood, what how I admire craftsmanship. And still, you know, now in Europe, how it has been appreciated kind of really came up. And then I kept doing it. Yeah. So you realised you're on something by chance. In that case, by yes, yes, absolutely. When you say the Istanbul group, does that mean you went to Istanbul to do something with Swarovski crystals? Or uh, no, actually, that's just an, you know. A name? Uh, so what happens with Swarovski? They collaborate with first years when I was there, but now they do in the third years. They are new crystals, and then they let you know students to explore the crystals. So this is how the groups kind of split into depending on which crystals they must use. So this is how you know I use the crystals, mm. which is amazing. <laughs> I mean, there seems to have been a couple of moments where your life has shifted quite enormously. In 2003, as you've mentioned, you were studying mm. hotel management in Turkey. Were you serious? Were you going to become a hotel manager? So when I was 16, 17, I said there is time, of course, I have to tell my dad I want to study fashion design. But I had to travel from my hometown to west of Turkey, Izmir, to study. This was a big problem because I can't really travel that far from my family. I have to be very near. So I decided to choose a fine art where we used to live. So this was the time when I had to explain my dad that I wanted to study fine art. And my dad looked at me, said, uh, well, your elder sister is already studying, so go and choose another one. Your elder sister was studying yes. fine art already. Yes, so you my couldn't. elder sister, yes. <laughs> so this kind of shifted my life and uh, I studied tourism and hotel management and, you know, it takes five years to study. So while I was studying also, I was working in five-star hotel. At some point, you know, okay, everything was okay. But this kind of routine life... I already experienced during my study and some of my friends already went to America and came back with very good English and I really wanted to do this one. If you think that my dad didn't let me travel to different city, how could? So I earned, you know, some money uh, and my sister kind of sold her uh, golden jewelry, uh, which she got, you know, on her wedding. And I applied for to go to America to improve and also work replacement. Uh, but in 2003, Iraq war started in mm. uh, March and there was big political instability going on and the Turkish government didn't let America use the airspaces in very near my hometown. Then, of course, America cancelled all the applications from students and I was one of them. And I was just going back home with my files and everything from agency. And I bumped into one of my friends and she just asked why I was upset. And I said that this happened. And she just jumped and she said, why don't you just join me to London? And she applied as an au pair. And I just did it because all file paper is ready. We went back to agency and I said, yeah, I'm going to apply for, go to London. So my friend Funda went back after 10 months and I 
stayed here. Right. And what, what did your father, you, you could swing this with your father? Uh, he didn't believe that I was going and he was always like, uh, so many people applied already now, nobody got it. And I kept quiet and he didn't even know that I had to travel to capital city Ankara to apply for a visa. He didn't know anything. I just <laughs> did everything so secretly. I know uh, it was just amazing. I did it. So you ran away from home, isn't it? <laughs> I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was a bit tough and because... My dad, you know, was the first one who studied uh, and I was the first woman who traveled different countries without marriage. You know, taking this responsibility was big because I had to find where I have to earn money and, you know, pay back to my sister and all these responsibilities. And also my mom never told me, but my relatives were calling my mom every day to ask me to go back. Otherwise, she's going to lose me. Mm. You know, it's like constant fight within my life. Is You can imagine how difficult living in London, earning money. And also, I had to support my siblings, my younger siblings, because they were going to uni as well. On top of it, I have to make sure, you know, my family is okay and my relatives, which is amazing. Now, Instagram, some of my relatives are following me, so they know what I am doing. <laughs> <laughs> were they making the tray with you, I wonder? Uh, Probably they want to make one. They want to make one. Okay. I mean, was it a culture shock coming here? Of course. I mean, of course. I think it's a big change, you know. I think I left my hometown, busted roads, and I found myself in this stuffed, you know, underground. So many people. It's just simply this is different. You know, mm. starting your day is different. But... I think what made my life easy, accepting and observing these differences. Yeah, this is this is kind of made my life. Of course, when I say easy, it wasn't easy, but I kept constant, you know, remembering that, you know, different culture and it will take time. And what did you do when you came here? Were you working in the hotel sector or? No, 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 no. Uh, I... Never wanted to do it, uh, to be honest. <laughs> so I came here as an au pair. I know this is a bit boring one, but I was in queue for 12 years and I was with the same family. I know. So at the weekends, I was working in a Turkish restaurant in Broadway Market. And during the day, in the evenings, I was babysitting. But also for Turkish people, I have to set a business in order to, do, to stay and be able to have my leave to remain. And, you know, during the day I was also doing cleaning. But what gave kind of this flexibility if I did, you know, cleaning, I was able to do or meet or change plans because it's just cleaning. I call the people, you know, and also families that I used to babysit. I can shift it or, you know, make it in the following day. This kind of gave me to explore London. Right. Yeah. But I know it took a very long time. My first six years, I also supported my siblings. It, it was a bit difficult. Um, and they finished their studies. And I thought, I think it is my kind of, you know, turn to do something. And then I met one of my friends, Chichik. She showed me her portfolio with all jewellery. And I was just amazed. 
what she did. And when I had time, I just popped into Richmond Adult Community College and I found out, you know, diploma and jewellery and decided to take it. So a kind of foundation type course? NOCN, I think, okay. uh, diploma. This, yeah, yeah. It was full on. Yes, if I had to do foundation, I should do this one as well, which was kind of helped me, you know, to go further. But yeah, this is kind of how it went. It's kind of monotone life to finding out something more interesting and exploring different things. So when you got to Richmond and you started doing jewellery, this was immediately you realised you were in the, doing the right thing for you? In 2008, yes, because I also started going to collect. The Cross Council Fair. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And because uh, my teacher, you know, Astrid Mara, she used to put what's going on in London. And I was just amazed that kind of I tried my best to follow all these exhibitions. And every time I went, I explored so many beautiful things in artistic way, also beautiful craftsmanship. And then this was kind of, you know, in 2008 and going to 2009. And in June, I sadly lost my youngest brother. And jeweler was only tools that made my hands, you know, going on and... It kept me kind of busy, mm-hmm. um, and this is this is really how I thought. You know, jewelry was a kind of big thing, and I must you know hold on to it. So, doing jewelry helped you get over the, of course, the death of your of brother, course, which was two thousand nine. Yeah, two thousand nine. Yeah. Was, and did he did he die of the sickle cell that you were talking about earlier? He did. Yeah, yes. Yes. Sadly, and you know, I just enjoyed you know my foundation the following year. And I didn't know where I was going, to be honest. But the only thing I knew that I never stopped. I kept, you know, Mm. doing what I love doing it. I just said, you know, why not? I try jewellery and I applied, you know, Santa San Martins, which was amazing. You know, I know I finished study, but sometimes I just think, did I really finish it? (laughs) And I remember on the first day that I stood in this beautiful building in King's Cross and I said, yes, you know, three years making what I like was, uh, yeah, beautiful thing. When did the notion of making pieces that kind of encapsulated the refugee crisis emerge in your work? Presumably, it was at the start of the Syrian civil war. I think in my second year, we had a project called Who Are You? And I have to spend all my summer preparing with this one. And this was the first time I was going to spend, I think, more than two weeks in my hometown with my family. And... In 2012, July, also, you know, uh, Olympic Games. Yeah, the London Games, yeah. Um, It was beautiful, colourful, lively, and everybody were happy, which was brilliant. But on the day I arrived in my hometown was silence, you know, very near, you know, war zone. And finding myself in that situation really forced me to complete my collection around it. Olympic Games meant peace, bringing people together. But what it meant in my hometown is completely destruction, war, losing people, destroying lives, belongings. And I think these two different elements, what I experienced on the same day, 
impact on me. And, you know, my dad was watching news and he always got angry with what was happening in Syria. And at the same time, he was just watching another channel, how many participants received, you know, gold medals, which is funny. We didn't realize how abnormal things going on in the world. Yeah, this kind of abnormality driven me to complete my collection around the refugees. But not just one collection, obviously. I mean, it's been eight years of ongoing work. It is, it is indeed. So in 2012, I completed my summer piece, which was also catwalk piece in my second year. Then in 2014, I wanted to keep same structure, but what I needed is learning you know, the techniques really properly because what was happening with my previous piece, when you hold it, it might kind of split into pieces, which I never wanted to do, you know, have this one uh, with my pieces. So the refugee collection was really going back and then learning the techniques from my mom and then redoing it again. This is how is being completed. How important are the materials that you use for each piece? I mean, I mean, do you start with the material and create a form, mm. which is a metaphor for something deeper, or do you have the idea first and then use the most suitable material you can find? I think they feed each other, to be honest. But materials are very important, especially after lockdown. When I was in my secondary school, I used to make bags from garments, old garments. And my mom never binned any of my sister's garment without asking me. She would find something, let's say skirt. She would stretch and stand in front of my door, room door, and then ask, do you think you could do this one for any reason? Otherwise, I'm going to bin it. And as soon as I look at it, yes, you know, it should be my new bags, you know, pockets. Yes, why not? This is always kind of kept collected. And I made during my sister's studies, always they used, you know, my handbag, handmade bags. And of course, you know, at the moment is very important how I protect environment, how I choose my pieces. I know I used vegetable tent leather during my final collection, but at the moment I am also exploring off-cut leather, collecting from designers, but also popping in the leather shop that I visit very often. And now even the refugee collection, I used to get paper rush, which was very cheap. Like I would pay £25 for a kilo, but unfortunately none of the manufacturers are doing it at the moment, which is sad. And I found one in Australia and it cost me over £500 just to bring over mm. here two kilos, which mm. is a lot. But what it made me kind of explore, you know, what other options that I can use. And recently I was in contact with Craig Green team who was also, I mean, great um, men's uh, fashion designer. We were together in the Saraband as well. I am planning to use their fabrics. Hopefully when they donate me plenty, I will start my new pieces. But at the moment, you know, I couldn't, which I need kind of two more pieces mm. to complete my collection. So with vegetable tanned leather, you know, in my second year, we did leather project and it was the kind of experiment that we had to do, 35 experiments, and I went to 60. But, you know, the knitting, cutting cord from leather and then knitting it, it came my 20th experience of the project. And I took this one for my final collection. Right. This all kind of, you know, fed 
through my study to my final collection. You use some techniques that will be familiar to Western audiences, as we've discussed, the knitting and the crochet in particular. But I'm interested in the Turkish carpet making you used called hasir. What does that entail? What it means to me is like my mom, have she made it and have she made living with it? And how I question it as a traditional way of making it. And what crafts, you know, has with the weaving is memories and how my mom kind of taught me in a way that how she learned. And I kind of, you know, carried out the way that I want to share with my audience in Europe. This was a kind of, you know, big moment, you know, how can you take a traditional craftsmanship and then make it to yourself in order to really express what you want to achieve with your pieces and reflect your concept. It is not really, Hase is not really done, you know, by some people anymore. It's just kind of dead, you know, crafts. It's just carrying out this craftsmanship was big thing. And I just wanted to take responsibilities mm. talking about it and also reflecting my concept as well. I'm fascinated by what your parents make of your career now, because your mother didn't want you to weave and here you are in Sarabang, weaving away is doing other things. What, what, what do they make of it all? So I completed my collection in 2015 uh, at the end of May. There was a time when I had to show my mom because she wanted to know, you know, what I am doing with Hasir, of course. We were on Skype. So I showed her the piece I made and it's now in Craftscan's collection. I showed my mom and my mom, she looked at it and she started question. So in Turkish culture and also in the Middle Eastern culture, we mostly criticize the things if they can be done by our mothers is kind of simple. If my mom can't do it, so that means, you know, it's beautiful. So my mom was looking at my pieces and she asked me, how did you do this one and how I did this one? And I was explaining it and my mom paused and I said, Hmm, I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, now I'm like, my mom can't do it. <laughs> so that was the kind of brilliant time. And I know she was very pleased, very, very pleased with my pieces and what I did with them. Good. Well, I'm glad. The presentation of your work is very important too. For when the nest falls, for example, you presented your handwoven sculptures from the Refugees One collection with a pair of dancers and musicians in The Rubble Talks 2. That's a performance that aims to represent the journey of refugees. Why do you choose to present your work in that way with dance? I think what I wanted to achieve with my two collection, The Refugee and The Burden, I want them to tell the stories and why they were made without me explaining to my audience. You know, jewellery, we wear it and they perform as you know, in our daily lives. And this is other thing as well. But what I aimed within my performances is very short uh, time selected. And this is minimum time that I can show, you know, people how ordinary people's life being destructed and destroyed. It involves music and it involves kind of people dances, music, and it's all about our daily lives, Middle Eastern, you know, music. Like when the nest falls, I selected three different music, which is, you know, from Middle East, 
from Europe and also from Turkey. Okay, so you're not writing the music yourself. This no. is stuff that you find, uh, right? No, no, I wouldn't. This is all selected, the reason why, and all the movement, there was reason, like when the nest falls in nine minutes and it's simply like two performers hidden within pieces, beginning of life, you know, hidden in the cocoons that come out and then they make built their lives and then kind of destroyed. Uh, it just simply, I want them, you know, pieces to show, you know, why they were made. Mm. And what about the choreography? Do you do that? I do everything, do that? everything, everything, mm. yes. And especially, you know, when I meet people, yeah, and the musicians also play for progress, which I work for them, you know, they are the, one of the organizations support, you know, young refugees. Okay, progress. I also, right. yes, uh, I also work with them, so they support my pieces, which is incredible to have bring things together and I know, you know, where to do what, you know, performance. And it's just all, you know, mood boards that I prepare for everyone. Mm. I mean, do you have a dance background in that case? Mm, no, no, <laughs> but no. <laughs> but as a Turkish, you know, I kind of, you know, that's simply. It's but just nothing natural. To, yes. <laughs> yeah, not, um, no, nothing as a performance, yeah. So I'm quite intrigued with your work where the market exists. Where do you sell it? Is selling important? You've alluded to, you've got pieces in the Crafts Council's collection, for instance, but are there other people buying what it is that you do? Um, I think it was just, at the beginning, very difficult where to put my pieces because they didn't exist, either basketry or Mm. other fashion pieces. It took me ages, but my aim for my first five years was really using my pieces to express refugees and their struggle and also giving workshops and also telling or sharing, you know, craftsmanship. This year, my last year of my fifth year plan is I started making pieces and also they are out in a mint shop and also uh, one in Islington, the sustainable things. They are all kind of surprisingly coming out and I know people are interested and I do kind of, you know, start selling. So so you're available in Mint? <laughs> Indeed, yes. It, which yeah. is in South Kensington? It is, yes. Lena Canify's yes. store? Yeah, they're also coming up, you know, new exhibitions as well. Okay. And we're talking in August. Issues around immigration that have recently raised their head again in the British press. Does your work stop in that case, I wonder? Will you ever feel that you're able to tackle other subjects? I don't think I will kind of stop it. You know, we don't really see much on TVs or in newspapers. Just recently, as you said, you know, we we were the one who were clapping NHS members and how they came from different backgrounds. And they became, you know, refugees became a big problems again. It is happening. Every day is happening. Every day is happening, but we don't really see them in the newspapers. I will continue, of course, and what my pieces make people understand different, you know, shifting. I try to shift the struggle in a way how we pursue, you know, in our daily lives. This will continue definitely. And also I will I will definitely complete a piece in November for Black Lives Matter movement supported. And there's also a big problem at the moment, women and how it is being uh, victimized by their husband or, you know, relatives in Turkey. There's a big, big issue. And there will be hopefully a piece 
installation for this one for next year as well. Very good. Well, I'm looking forward to all that. Esna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your time too. To discover more about Esna's work, go to esnasu.co.uk. There are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. If you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well. <laughs>